Bienvenidos, esto es Diario de Abordo, una travesía a Waldorf. Mi nombre es Juan Pablo Varías. Y yo soy José Tobar. Somos dos profesores de secundaria intentando llevar una bitácora de las distintas peripecias que se presentan en el viaje por la educación Waldorf. Desde el Colegio Waldorf estamos grabando nuevamente. Eh, a continuación van a escuchar una entrevista con Vicky Stamler. Vicky es una maestra especializada en los grados de la primaria, eh, pero además tiene muchísima experiencia en todo el currículum de trabajo manual que es muy, muy importante en, en la pedagogía Waldorf. Eh, en esta ocasión estamos entrevistando a una maestra de primaria, a pesar de que siempre en la introducción se dice que somos maestros de secundaria. Eh, y esto con el objetivo de entender un poquito de la importancia de, de los grados previos eh, como les digo, esto, esta entrevista fue durante el contexto de las formaciones que tenemos aquí en el Colegio Waldorf Guatemala para los maestros. Vicky es una de las capacitadoras. La entrevista es en inglés, la entrevista que van a escuchar, debido a que pues, ese es el idioma que, en el que ella eh, se desempeña. Y entonces nosotros, para no perder la oportunidad, a pesar de ser un podcast en español, pues igual dialogamos con ella un ratito. Así que espero que disfruten la entrevista. So, hello, Vicky. It's really nice to have you here at the Waldorf School of Guatemala, uh, joining us, not just for this conversation, but for the whole, whole um, teacher training. Uh, it was really nice to, to meet you and to learn a lot of things about you um, during your um, mask-making class mm -hmm. I was there. Mm -hmm. uh, it was really nice to, to share that time with you and, and and actually to see that I was able to do a mask. I, I thought I was not going to be able to. But Vicky, maybe you can tell us a little bit about uh, how did you become a Waldorf teacher? When I first went to college, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. And I went to teacher college. And um, I did not like what they were teaching me. And mm -hmm. I thought, I can't make a life out of treating children this way like they're machines and have to fit in a box and sit in their chair and take all these tests. It just, I knew I couldn't do that. And then I met, uh, about 10 years later, I met some teenagers and they were very different in how they behaved than other teenagers I'd met. And I said, yeah, there's something different about you. And they said, oh, well, we're Waldorf students. <laughs> I said, well, what's that? And they said, it's this kind of school. And so then I started looking into it. And I ended up on Kauai in Hawaii. And they had a little Waldorf school. I went to a festival there. And it was so beautiful and so full of imagination. And I thought, if they treat a festival like this, I wonder what they do in the classroom. Right. And then they didn't have a handwork teacher. I know how to do handwork. So I said, I think I, you need to hire me. <laughs> <laughs> so they did. Great, yeah. great. And how long ago was that? Wow, that was, let's see, in 90, 1990. 1990? Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, so well, you have a lot of experience in, um, Talking about handwork, mm -hmm. uh, that's something that is very special it uh, is. in the grades. Well, uh, actually along the whole um, school, like in the preschool, it's also very important. Uh, in grades one to eight, and still in the high school, it's very important. Mm -hmm. why, why do you think um, 
it's the handwork has this um, important place uh, in the curriculum and uh, in the learning process of the of the children. Well, the children love it. They get to come in, and there's there's no pressure, and they get to make something beautiful, and it's a very relaxed situation in the handwork room. That's the one level of it. On a on a deeper level, there's a lot of problem solving in handwork. The children make a mistake and they have to figure out how to fix it. Their string gets in a knot, they have to figure out how to undo it. So they're constantly having to think about how to solve a problem. And it's very satisfying when they do. Yeah. It's, not, um, it's not the same as raising your hand in the classroom and giving the wrong answer and feeling like, oh no. <laughs> in, in handwork, everybody's making mistakes. In fact, I often tell them, well, mistakes are how you learn. Yeah, if you're point. not making mistakes, you're not learning. So uh, it, that problem-solving aspect brings a great deal of common sense, and it fits right into the work in a Waldorf school where we are really working and striving to help children develop their thinking capacity. We want them to be able to be critical thinkers as they grow up and as their frontal lobes develop, as they enter those teenage years and, and that kind of capacity comes to them. We, we want them to be able to already have laid the foundation for developing their critical thinking skills. And handwork is a great way to do that. Yeah, and I think that's actually a really good answer because most of the um, parents that don't know anything about Walder for people that it's that are outside of the community uh, normally they think well they are always knitting and uh, <laughs> painting and uh, going to the garden and they actually don't see that well they are getting this problem-solving skills mm -hmm. um, it's really tangible when when you're knitting for example that you're not able to to go through and then you are you're able to solve the problem and you can see how everything changes mm -hmm. so yeah I think that's that's very important you're also uh, by using your hands in that way both hands especially in knitting and you're you're going back and forth in knitting and you're doing these little patterns your brain it, it follows your hands what your hands do your brain is doing and so you're literally knitting the hemispheres of your brain together. You're, you're making them learn how to work better together. Right. So and again, developing your thinking capacity. Yeah. You know? And and there's a whole curriculum about there handwork. Is. It's there not is. that uh, we're just going to do uh, things with uh, with our hands and that's it. Actually, it develops through the grades and all that. Can you tell us, for example, how it's handwork different uh, from first grade and to eighth grade, for example? Well, in first grade, they're learning just how to handle their hands in that way, they, and they learn to knit. Um, it's very relaxing. It's very satisfying. They get to make something that they can use. Um, and, and it's simple knitting. It's using both hands. And in the first grade, developmental sphere of the inner human development, learning to use both hands in that way is very important. Second grade, we tend to continue that. 
and then slowly move toward crocheting. And sometimes that comes in the second grade, sometimes, almost always it comes in the third grade. And the children then are using one needle, so it's their writing hand. And mm. so they're really developing a dexterity there with the hand that they're going to use for the predominance of the activities that they use their hands for. And fourth grade, we want them to, uh, we want their brain again to do this crossing. So we do cross stitch and they're working constantly with this very repetitive pattern. Uh, one cross after another, after another, after another. And they've designed something beautiful and they really want to do it, but oh my God, it takes almost a year to finish your crossword, crosswork. And that in itself develops their will and their determination and the knowing that even when you want to put it down, you want to finish it also. So you just keep going. And that's a really great skill to have, especially in this era where everything is just handed to children. Yeah. So for them to figure out their own self-discipline and self-determination, it's really very, very good. Yeah, and talking about the will, uh, that's something that a lot of Waldorf teachers uh, say, and it's mm -hmm. really common to talk about the will and a lot. Why do you think it's that important to work on the will uh, for the students when they become an adult, for example? Well, the simplest way to put it is your will is you're accomplishing things, you're doing things. And so if you're not capable of carrying something through to its end, thinking it through and then having the inner gumption to actually do it and stick with it, then you're not going to be able to accomplish very much. So we really want to develop that, not because I tell you you should finish that, but because you want to. Because you have developed your will enough to know that there's something in this. You have developed a desire to see it through. And, and we really work on that in the children. Handwork is one of the ways to do that. Yeah, and I think that see the result of your effort after mm -hmm. yeah, doing some of it with your hands really gives you that um, insight that if you go through with something, then you will accomplish a lot of things. And yes. if you don't work that will through mm -hmm. the practical activities, mm -hmm. like for example, handwork, but also with the garden and with music and through the um, um, art class and all that. And well, art is embedded along the, yeah. the whole curriculum. I think that that will help you, well, help the, the children a lot. Yeah. Um, so the projects get increasingly more difficult until eighth grade. And I only went first through eighth grade, so I can't speak about the high school. Uh, in eighth grade, they're studying the Industrial Revolution in history, and so, which is when the sewing machine came about. Right. And so they study the sewing machine and all of its parts and how it works and how that needle goes through and the threads intertwine, and then they design and make an outfit for themselves. And they also make the handwork bags for the next year's first graders to give them as a gift. Yeah, so it's, it, it's, it's increasingly complex, increasingly more uh, difficult situations for them to solve. You can make so many very quick mistakes with a sewing machine and then have to take it out. And an eighth grader wants instant gratification. Yeah. And so when they sew a sleeve on Inside Out and they have to sit there with the seam 
stitch puller and pull out stitch by stitch by stitch, it develops something in them that's different than getting something right away. Yeah. Yeah. And that really works their will again. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Good. That and good old will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And for example, well, just as you said, uh, there's a curriculum through handwork and uh, things uh, like change and everything. Um, and I think I, I was saying before that um, probably that's the wisdom of Wilder of uh, education, like waiting for something to be age appropriate to be introduced. Mm -hmm. So um, one key example of that is uh, the learning how to read and write. Yes. Why, why do we wait uh, until the first grade and not in the preschool? I'm going to talk to the modern parent in yeah. this answer in particular because that's who we're uh, working with now. Yes. Um, we wait until the children have lost their baby teeth. And that seems at first like, well, that's a strange thing to base reading on. But modern research is finding that when these baby teeth come out and the uh, permanent teeth start to come in, there's changes that occur in the brain. Yeah. And the brain starts to be ready to do the kind of processing of information that reading needs. Now, I never really taught reading mm -hmm. in my class. I provided them with the, uh, with the letters. We learned the letters. We learned the sounds the letters make. We start putting the letters together. And most of them one day would walk up to me with a book and say, this says the cat chased the dog or whatever it is in, that was in the story. They just, at one point, it made sense to them. And we give them, it's like building a building. We lay the foundation, we put the bricks in, we get everything going for them. And when they're ready, it's not that we delay it, but when they are ready, when their inner development has reached the stage without being artificially pushed into some uh, imaginary, supposed to happen, they start reading. Yeah, and I was not that fortunate to go to a Walder school, mm -hmm. but I can imagine the feeling of uh, accomplishing something like that, yes. discovering like all these letters, now they make sense. Yes. And not because actually someone pushed that into me, mm -hmm. but because I discovered that, mm -hmm. ah, I yeah. can imagine that. Yeah, feeling. it's pretty exciting. It's, yeah. it, to see the look on their face when, when they know that they have put something together. And reading is so extraordinary. You, you are basically able then to, to imagine yourself in the mind of another person through the words they've written. Now, my ideas about reading were very much tested in one of my classes where I had a young woman who did not read until fifth grade. Her parents were not worried about it because neither of them had re read until fifth grade. And we'd had her tested and she had perfectly normal learning abilities. She just didn't read and didn't read and didn't read. And one day she walked in the class and she picked up a three-inch novel. She sat at her desk and that's what she did all day. <laughs> she read. 
And I did, I was like, you don't have to do your main lesson book work today, you are reading. (laughs) (laughs) And same thing goes with numbers, right? Yes. There's a discovery process uh, through addition and subtraction and multiplication and all that. All of that is built in a story format and in an organic way. And the children, we're counting the numbers by moving and singing. And so the idea of quantity, Mm -hmm. not the abstraction of a number means that, the idea of quantity literally enters their bones. And one of my all-time favorite times in teaching is the math classes, when they start to understand that all of numbers are patterns, mm-hmm. that they, they have a, a, a regularity, a rhythm to them. And if you can understand those patterns, suddenly they make sense. Yeah. I love math. It's, it's just, it's honest. It's not like there's six ways to say the letter A. In math, there's one is one, two is two. (laughs) It's just that. (laughs) There's a beautifulness to it. Yes, definitely. Yeah. And you also mentioned stories. And I think, um, well, for the the great curriculum, stories are very, very important. Absolutely. Well, it, it has to do with this noticing that... Waldorf education pioneers did a hundred years ago that the child lives in their imagination. Science has now come around to saying, oh yeah, that imaginal brain aspect of the child is very strong during those years. So we speak the story to the children about the information we want to give them and we'll make up some or we'll find some and in that way, they form a picture of it. They, they form an imagination. It's not like a fantasy. It is an imagination, just like anything we imagine. Um, and they form this idea of it, and it starts to live within them. And through that, it, it works on their growing forces. And we, we tailor our stories very carefully. Uh, because we want to impart very specific information in those images. If I show a child uh, a piece of paper, I'm holding up a piece of paper for those who can't see. Um, If I show a child a piece of paper with a bunch of writing on it, if they don't know how to read, it won't make any sense. If they do know how to read, it's limited to the words that are right there. With a picture, even if the sun is not in the picture, if it's a bright day, the children know the sun is out. It, in, it is very inclusive. So the imagination is very inclusive in this way. It, it, it's a great way to reach deep into a child and give them the information that they need. Yeah, they, they, they get a feeling. And from that feeling, they understand. And you can work a lot of things with uh, stories, right? Uh, even some therapeutical things. Uh, oh, yes. Some of them say they are healing stories. Yes. Um, can you tell us a little bit about this healing stories? What what can you do about uh, well, through the stories that you tell well, in the say, classroom? Say, say two children aren't getting along very well, and they've been for for a couple of days they've been at each other and 
complaining and just getting under each other's skin. So I would make up a story about probably two little animals in the forest who are having a similar problem. And without pointing out to these children, oh, you did that and you're wrong and you're wrong and da 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 I'm telling them the story and giving them a solution. And it's remarkable how the children recognize themselves in that and recognize themselves in the solution. And it very often completely resolves the problem between them. Uh, if a child's struggling with something, I might tell a story of someone who, or myself even, as remembering a time when I struggled with something and then coming to the point of, but with patience and with hard work and with time, I was able to overcome that. And so the child finds a great deal of reassurance in these stories that mirror what they're living inside them, their own struggles and, and their own uh, successes, their own ideas, their own uh, problems. Yeah. And, and without being um, that direct that will uh, mark uh, a, a child uh, for life. Yeah, right? no right. shame involved in listening to the chipmunk and the squirrel having an argument. <laughs> <laughs> and it's so much more powerful than saying, could you two just stop fighting? Right. Well, and you, you said that imagination and also fantasy, actually, they are essential for the lower grades. Well, I, w I wouldn't really say fantasy. Okay. Yeah, that's just not a word I would use in that. Okay. But I would definitely say imagination. And some people may think that those words are very similar. Mm -hmm. and, and they are somewhat. But the, the image consciousness, the, the part of the child that brings those images in and lives into them, uh, it's very real to them. It's right. not, to them, it's not a fantasy. And it's part of why sometimes a child can tell you they saw something and you were right there and you didn't see it and you, you doubt it, but they know that, that they have created that imagination within themselves so strongly that they see it in the world around them. And, and why is it so important to cultivate imagination in, in the... Well, the imagination is the foundation of thinking. It's the foundation of creativity. It's the foundation of all the activities of the higher brain. All the activities of a human embracing the wonder and the joy and the awe of life. It, it comes through, if you can't imagine and feel awe at looking at a flower, how can you love the creations of nature. How can you love a flower? Yeah. It, it comes through your imaginal thinking. And, and again, science has gone, oh my goodness. <laughs> 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 in those first years of life and in, up into the uh, uh, certain levels of brain development, the child learns best through imagination. And oh my God. <laughs> it coincides with the losing of teeth. Yeah. <laughs> and so these things that we've been doing for a hundred years, science is coming around and saying, oh yeah, oh yeah, that's true too. Yeah. And I think that's really reassuring for parents to hear, that it's not just this kind of education that's very different from how they were educated. And so 
it takes a great leap of faith for them to say, I see the beauty in this, but will my child be educated enough? My experience in Waldorf education is I've had students that have gone on to MIT, Stanford, Yale, Harvard, mm -hmm. all of those fancy schools, and they seek out Waldorf students in El Norte. They seek them out because they are able to think outside the box. Yeah. They say, you know, they don't know all the facts of the War of 1812, but they know how to look it up. <laughs> and they know so much more about that era in history, and they bring a breadth, a, 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 lot of, a, a lot of breadth to a subject instead of just, just the facts. Just the facts is a very materialistic way of thinking. If I teach you just the facts and you give them to me on a test, I'll give you an A. That's like trading money for knowledge. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And one of the things that um, might seem a little uh, different, and uh, I think that it's very unique to wealth of education and that probably works on this... Um, of developing imagination and creativity and problem solving and all that, it's form drawing. Uh, I think that's, um, well, that's embedded in the curriculum and mm -hmm. um, then you develop that afterwards uh, as geometry. But what's the importance of form drawing? Well, we are developing geometry in the first grade. We're just starting with the very simple forms. And I was talking to the teachers here yesterday about the second graders. They have this great desire to complete things. So we give them half a form and we say, draw the other half. It's very satisfying to them. And they're learning in its simplest aspects, eye-hand coordination, very much like handwork. Um, they're learning problem solving. They're learning to work within certain parameters, certain confines. We want you to construct something that looks like this. And at the same time, we, we develop each type of form to fit the developmental aspects that are going on within the child so that the forms, they're almost like the sun on a piece of fruit. They're ripening them. I began every year through eighth grade with form drawing. Mm at the very beginning, a few weeks. In those forms, I was laying the foundation through what those forms were for every letter that we were going to draw, every letter that we were going to write, every letter that they were going to read. Because we do draw, then write, then read. Right. Yeah. So it's very practical, and it's very developmental in its effect on the children. Developmental is the big word. In yeah, the of education. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that yeah, bringing things when they are developmentally appropriate, it's mm -hmm. like the key uh, mm -hmm. of Waldorf education and why it's so successful yeah. uh, in reaching the students. Yeah, and all the academics and everything. Yeah, Vicky. Um, well, you're not just a teacher. You're also a midwife. Um, and before we started this uh, recording this conversation, you were telling me that your father um, is a pediatrician. Pediatrician was a pediatrician. Was a pediatrician. Um, so health or the um, concerning about health, I think it runs in the family, right? My father was a pediatrician. My mother was a teacher. Oh, so <laughs> so it is, it's kind of natural that I've, <laughs> I've combined both of them, and. 
I work in the realm of education, I work in a kind of therapeutic education. I've kind of felt like it was the most revolutionary thing I could do, the most radical thing I could do to help children learn in a way that they could think outside the box and therefore help solve the problems of the world. Yeah. I, I dream big. My imagination <laughs> is that these children can heal the world. And I think that's one of the um, things of Waldorf education, that it's really valuable. And it's not just that you are um, pushing in uh, academic content into the students, but you're also um, trying to um, provide them with a healthy rhythm and uh, to provoke them health. Um, and that's very difficult in this day and age. Yeah. Especially with cell phones, iPads, iPods, computers, televisions. I often would tell the parents in my class, you, you're paying quite a sum to have your children come to this Waldorf school. And I am doing my best every day to imbue them with images that I want them to take into their sleep so that their brain will work on them in all ways. And then they go home and they pick up these electronic things which are interacting with nothing but a machine. Yeah. And they go to sleep dreaming about the superhero or, the, or whatever it was in the video game. Or, that's what you've paid for. Instead, and that's what you're getting. How, how would you describe like a healthy rhythm for um, someone that is in the lower grades? What will be like the? Well, you want them to get a lot of sleep. You want the uh, you want the children to go to bed at a very early hour and and make it the same time. And you want them to get up at the same time in the morning. And you want them to have at least three regular meals a day, and to play outside. They don't need to take a lot of classes and this and classes and that. They need to play in an imaginative way with what nature provides. And just giving them a lot of homework uh, will... I want to teach them what I want to teach them in school. Home exactly. In homework, I want them to play. I, I often tell parents that I feel like my job is protecting an endangered species, and that endangered species <laughs> is childhood. Yes, just giving them a lot of things to do at home will prevent them from, will prevent them uh, from having a healthy childhood and to be able to play, just what you were Let saying. Let them be children. Let, it, it's such a short period of life. They have a long time to put all the weights of the world on their shoulder. Let them be children. Yeah. Okay, so Vicky... That was uh, a good spot to end it on. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Thank you very much you're for very, very joining welcome. us for the conversation. So, Fun. Thank you. You made it easy. <laughs> you made it very easy to thank just you. have a good conversation. Yeah.